0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host Tim Patrick, and this is episode 115, May 29th to June 4th, 1863. Last week, we talked about the initial assaults on Vicksburg. Grant is going to continue with his reputation as a butcher as a result of these attacks, Especially when we get to the Overland Campaign of 1864, which is going to be a lot of attacking the Confederates in fixed positions. And, of course, the lack of a truce to collect the dead in the hot Mississippi sun is going to also add into that reputation. Setting into a siege, the Federals will attempt to use the Navy and then wait out the rebels. Port Hudson was also talked about last week and sees much the same in terms of northern attacks. We're going to talk about the siege warfare involved in Mississippi this week. At the back end of the episode, we will talk about copperheads and politics involved in the armies, especially in the east. And finally, we will start the large process of introducing Gettysburg. Before we get into it, though, just a quick reminder of our Patreon content. And as we turn the page into June here... We are going to go back to a memoir review, and this is going to be Moxley Sorrell's memoir, and he was a staff officer under Longstreet, so he is directly involved with a lot of the things that we have been talking about and then will be talking about here moving forward. Uh, So I figured that was a good time to roll that one out, especially because I think we might have a run of movies here. There are a couple that happen in, in pretty quick order, and... I think we might be doing some nice looking at the cinema uh, here, especially in July with Gettysburg. you know, Glory, of course, a classic. And then also Ride with the Devil uh, when we get to the Lawrence raid. I do want to take a look at that one as well. So a couple of more modern movies, and if that sounds like something that would interest you or the memoir review, of course, the Patreon link is in the show description and your contribution does go toward the general upkeep of the show, and it is, of course, very appreciated. So Grant is going to put the city of Vicksburg under siege, and try to wait out his enemy. I do want to talk about the siege in general this episode, but also one major fallout from the failed assaults we discussed last episode, which I say for this one, and that is that we need to say goodbye to John McClernand as Corps Commander. Grant and McClernand, as we have highlighted in previous episodes, were not on good terms, but Grant needed a reason to actually relieve his subordinate. He could have done so prior to crossing the Mississippi, but it's pointed out in several sources that McClernand was actually the exact kind of aggressive general that Grant would need in his movements against the Confederates prior to reaching Vicksburg. With that city under siege, he no longer needed an aggressive commander. There are also sources that I've seen that have pointed out that McClellan is not necessarily a terrible battlefield commander, and so it would be important for Grant, especially as we continue into the later stages of the war, to keep veteran commanders that know what they're doing in their spots. It may surprise you to know that the 13th Corps commander was not relieved after the assaults. Grant had not visited that sector of the battlefield, an oversight on his part, but it was the report that McClernand's morning attacks on the 22nd, which led to more pressure on other parts of the line. This report of success was an exaggeration, as we well know. Letters were being sent to Halleck, but Grant would hold off for the time being. It was not until McClernand sent a circular to his corps, which essentially claimed all the success so far was theirs, a slap in the face for Sherman and McPherson. Crucially, though, the political general would then send that circular to a newspaper without permission, which violated a standing order in the army. Grant would confirm that his subordinates had understood his order before officially relieving him. We know that Sherman and also Grant, and to be fair, other general officers during the Civil War do not like the press, and obviously Grant wanted to put the clamp down on anything getting out to the newspapers that could be used against him. And obviously, for this reputation that grants a drinker, any kind of failure or any kind of setback would obviously be used against him. But the important part is, is that the biggest opponent to Grant in his, at least immediate, circle had finally been dealt with, McClarnon being sent to lesser theaters. Admiral Porter's Navy would then begin the bombardment of the city, using his tried-and-true mortar vessels. This would do much damage in terms of the buildings of the town, which, although were not all targets, were collateral damage as a part of the pounding. Citizens in the town would dig caves into the side of the bluff in an effort to keep away from the fire. We have accounts from civilians that describe not only the caves, but also the bombardment. The caves were plainly becoming a necessity, as some persons had been killed on the street by fragments of shells. The room that I had slept in had been struck by a fragment of a shell during the first night, and a large hole made in the ceiling. I shall never forget my extreme fear during the night, and my utter hopelessness of ever seeing the morning light. Terror-stricken, we remained crouched in the cave, while shell after shell followed each other in quick succession. I endeavored by constant prayer to prepare myself for the sudden death I was almost certain awaited me. My heart stood still, as we would hear the reports from the guns, and then the rushing and fearful sound of the shells that came toward us. As it neared, the noise becoming deafening, the air was full of the rushing sound. Pains darted through my temples, my ears were full of the confusing noise, and as it exploded, the report flashed through my head like an electric shock, leaving me in a quieter state of terror, the most painful that I can imagine, cowering in a corner, holding my child to my heart, the only feeling of my life being the choking throbs of my heart. That rendered me almost breathless. As singly as they fell short or beyond the cave, I was aroused by a feeling of thankfulness that was short of duration. Again and again, the terrible fright came over us in that night. And then here we have another one. Sitting in the cave one evening, I heard the most heartening screams and moans. I was told that a mother had taken a child into the cave about a hundred yards from us, and having laid it on its little bed, as the poor woman believed in safety, She took her seat near the entrance of the cave. shell came rushing through the air and fell with much force, entering the earth above the sleeping child. Oh, most horrible sight to the mother, crushing to the upper part of the little sleeping head and taking away the young innocent life without a look of word, of passing love to be treasured in the mother's heart. So obviously these are not necessarily great scenes and there is a severe strain on the civilians and it's unknown How many civilians exactly were killed? It's far-fetched to believe that none of them were killed or seriously wounded. Sherman writes that that is the case, and not sure why exactly he would do that. But obviously, if you still have civilians in the city and you're trying to render the city, uh, you're going to probably have some kind of collateral damage in terms of civilian casualties. So it is contrary to think there would be no deaths and in some of these accounts we do have some but we just don't know exactly how many we have talked about the city of vicksburg itself very briefly but it was a prosperous city that sat on the mississippi river it may also surprise you to know that during the 1860 election the city voted unionist rather than democrat and was not as sold on the idea of secession and war They had seen war already with the scattered bombardments via the navy and wounded arriving after the Battle of Shiloh. But the army investing the city would bring the terrible war directly to the citizenry. Communications and supply were cut, and while the various brave couriers would swim the river in an effort to get out, there was no such hope for supply getting in. Rations would be cut during the siege, and many soldiers would succumb to disease hospitals would be full of invalids who could not continue. The defenders who survived were described as emaciated by the time of the surrender. While the spirits were high amongst the federal rank and file, they agreed that it would be better not to assault the works. Grant would release the following orders as a result. Corps commanders will immediately commence the work of reducing the enemy by regular approaches. It is desirable that no more loss of life shall be sustained in the reduction of Vicksburg and the capture of the garrison. Every advantage will be taken of the natural inequalities of the ground to gain positions from which to start mines, trenches, or advanced batteries. The work will be under the immediate charge of Corps engineers, Corps commanders being responsible that the work in their immediate fronts is pushed with all vigor. Captain F.E. Prime chief engineer of the department, will have general superintendence of the whole work. He will be obeyed and respected accordingly. Siege operations without frontal attacks would prove to be very effective. Approaches would be dug so as to get closer to the enemy fortifications while also providing cover from the enemy. One such approach near the Louisiana Redan was particularly effective. Because this is where Logan's men were located, it became known as Logan's Approach. This sector would be led by Captain Samuel Hickenlooper. Engineers would use a flat car stacked with bales to protect workers as they dug closer. Eventually, this would evolve to mining activity, the Federals trying to use explosives to destroy the enemy works. Despite countermining, one was ready to go on June 26th. Confederates were alerted to the danger and had pulled back most of the troops. After detonating, troops from Illinois would storm the position but face stiff resistance from the defenders. Sergeant Henry Taylor would be awarded the Medal of Honor for planting the colors on the enemy works. After a day of struggle, the blue-clad troops would withdraw, having suffered over 200 casualties compared to 90 on the rebel side. Multiple mines were planned that would be combined with assaults, but the surrender of the defenders would come before the men could be lost. Despite the lopsided nature of the attacks conducted by Union forces, casualties during the siege would actually be one-sided in favor of the Union. Part of this would be the effectiveness of their sniping activity. Lieutenant Henry Foster of the 23rd Indiana, known as Coonskin because of his headgear, made a tower out of the railroad ties that were available, which he used to look down into the Confederate works. General Grant actually visited Coonskin Tower and was yelled at by the rebels lest he be shot by a sharpshooter on the enemy side. This was not the only position where the Union had the advantage in the siege warfare, but a good example of the type of conflict that was unrolling in Mississippi. Of course, we can also apply this same kind of tactics and same kind of advantages to Port Hudson. For our next part of the episode, we need to check in on what Ambrose Burnside is up to. After his removal at the head of the Army of the Potomac, he's going to be placed in command of the Department of Ohio, as opposed to simply resigning. This was actually a large area, if you recall, from our 1862 discussions, including Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois. It will be here that Burnside will issue General Order 38, which read, that hereafter, all persons found within our lines who commit acts for the benefit of the enemies of our country will be tried as spies or traitors, and if convicted will suffer death this order includes the following classes of persons the habit of declaring sympathies for the enemy will no longer be tolerated in the department persons committing such offenses will be at once arrested with a view to be tried as above stated or sent beyond our lines into the lines of their friends now why exactly did we have this issue Well, if you remember, we talked about how, especially amongst Democrats, there is a stronger peace movement. In Ohio, especially, there would be a popular movement led by Representative Clement Vallandigham. Vallandigham was an Ohio native, lawyer, and politician, of course. I think we have talked about Vallandigham before, and uh, that's also where we talked about how Vlandingham, Vallandigham, I've heard both those pronunciations one is obviously correct one is probably not or maybe they're both correct i don't know but i use valendigham so cover your ears if that hurts you if you you're a valanding if not pro-slavery he was very much against the war which led to him running for ohio governor in 1863 from exile in canada but that is actually where we need to jump back into our current timeline May 5th, he was arrested in accordance with a violation of the order for giving a speech in which he referred to the president as King Lincoln, and that there was a certain sacrifice of the liberty of the white man. Remember, habeas corpus is suspended, but a writ was issued regardless. Rather than execute him, the Lincoln administration would turn him over to the Confederates, which they honestly didn't really want him either, because it's not like he was pro-Confederacy. He's going to make his way through the Confederacy eventually to Canada, where he will run for the 1864 governorship and lose. While there, he will conspire with other individuals to create a Northwestern Confederacy, a revolt that would break away from the Union, which of course did not materialize. After the war, Vallandigham will be against the suffrage of blacks. He will oddly enough be killed while attempting to show colleagues how he would argue for a defendant on a trial for murder. Trying to show that a pistol was discharged whilst in the victim's pocket accidentally, he will not be aware that the weapon he was using to demonstrate was loaded. Although he was not there to see it, the defendant was actually acquitted, so point was taken. Let's talk a little bit about the political convictions, especially in the Army of the Potomac. This army is a tad different from the others who are operating further west because it was run by a Democrat, and not one like John McLernan, who was really just seeking military fame above anything else. McClernand was actually not even that really great of a friend of Lincoln, he was just using that relationship and the fact that he was a powerful player on the Democratic political scene to get himself where he wanted to go. That is, until Grant has something to say about it. While it is true the Midwestern states were less likely to be sympathetic to the plight of the enslaved, they had no problem in destroying Mississippi, as we have kind of highlighted. In Grierson's raid, while Grierson himself is a Republican and dedicated to the cause, his troops are mostly made up of men from the Democratic south of Illinois. That does not keep them from doing an excellent job in ripping up track in Mississippi and traveling with hundreds of escaped slaves south to freedom. Now, would they have potentially been less sympathetic to the Southern people if they were mostly Republicans? That could have been. They certainly would not have put out the fires of civilian buildings like they had. Many of these men were changed by scenes of slavery in the Deep South in its most intense form. So too were the soldiers in the East, although Virginia is hardly Mississippi in terms of the institution. While copperheads are gaining ground in the political arena, many of the men are starting to resent their undermining habits, as we've mentioned before. Slavery was starting to be seen, at the very least, something that needed to be eliminated in order to take a shot at the Confederate war effort. Gears had already started to turn following the Emancipation Proclamation. Union regiments in the spring of 1863 would make kind of proclamations of their own. Starting with the 11th Corps, troops would send back statements of their resolve to keep fighting, and to denounce those who would speak against the war. Some of these declarations have powerful language. One of my favorites has a line that just like the Apostles, you will find just as many Judas Iscariots amongst the Army of the Potomac. Of course, these would be written by Republicans mostly, or at least those who lined up with the spectrum politically. There were enough declarations that stated the soldiers believed it would be a holy war, and they would speak out against those who thought otherwise. Were there other motives for these men? Most likely, yes. The Eleventh Corps in particular had been victimized in the press for their poor performance at Chancellorsville, but it was not the fault of the enlisted men. There were those who wrote that there was no way they could have stood against the attack so unprepared. The Northern papers would take it a step further and attack the fact that they were primarily German regiments. When you go through memoirs from soldiers during the time period, you start to realize that there is a definite aversion to ethnic Germans. While the Irish too can be victimized, they are often not treated in the same light. I've seen in some memoirs where words are used to villainize Germans, calling them cowardly, crafty, sneaky, amongst others. These men were liberal in thinking, usually coming from the revolutions of 1848 in Europe, so there is potentially already some mistrust amongst the more conservative population. Irish are usually portrayed as stalwart and noble, at least in those that I've read. It is kind of interesting too, like when you read these memoirs and these accounts, there's usually like, oh, that's just Paddy over there, and uh, you talk about like, one Irish guy, and there's usually some kind of funny antidote about him. But then when you flip it over to talking about Germans, there is definitely a kind of mistrust of those kinds of individuals. And partially that could be because at least the Irish shared a common language, right? Like you could understand what they were saying. A lot of these German regiments, they only spoke German and probably didn't speak English all too well. So maybe there's that kind of factor in there. But unfortunately, even though these individuals are are making up a a large portion of, especially the Union armies, there is that kind of mistrust, and there's plenty of examples of that. In the face of criticism, then it could be rightfully assumed that the 11th Corps would want to fight back somehow, unless there are reasons for going to war and continuing to fight, while at the same time bashing the peace Democrats. Whether it was time to defend their honor and argue that they were going to be good soldiers or not, this practice did spread to other units in the army. So we can start to see the seeds being planted that will result in the lopsided victory for Lincoln in the 1864 election, despite in many ways this still being McClellan's army. So everybody, to close out this episode, we need to do something that is hard to believe has finally arrived we need to start setting up the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, it has been a couple of episodes since we wrapped up Chancellorsville, but let's drop back in on what's going on in Virginia. We will first talk about Robert E. Lee and the Confederacy. Chancellorsville was a great victory, but much like Fredericksburg, there was no follow-up. Federal forces had suffered in both battles, but unlike Fredericksburg, so too did the Confederates. Lee, though, understood that there needed to be pressure on the enemy while momentum had swung the way of the South. It was only a matter of time before F.J. Hooker attempted another offensive. May 15th will mark the beginning of the Gettysburg Campaign in many ways because this would mark a meeting between Lee and the Confederate Cabinet. The Confederate General would outline his plan to invade the North in the meeting with all possible force. On the same day that Stonewall Jackson is buried in Lexington, Lee will present this for a variety of reasons. He believes in keeping up the initiative. Following Chancellorsville, he will have the initiative, and considering how costly the battle was, it was important for Lee to continue. Things are not going hunky-dory in the other theaters of the war. Bragg is being pushed back in Tennessee. Pemberton is having to deal with Grant moving on Vicksburg and in both these places, there will be calls for additional manpower. Jefferson Davis does a lot of tinkering when it comes to manpower, trying to keep things afloat. Due to the pressure on Richmond, it has been important for the Confederates to keep resources in Virginia. If there is no offensive, some of Lee's men might be diverted to other portions of the country. Pickett's division, which missed Chancellorsville due to foraging, is brought up as potentially being slated to move out west. Lee needs to act quickly if he's to keep his army intact. Much like Antietam, there could be good rewards in the political arena if he spends some time on northern soil. If Hooker is defeated again, this time in his territory, it will be big for turning the tide. I've also seen it in many of my sources that Gettysburg is also called the greatest commissary raid in military history. Another big reason for moving north is that Virginia needs to be relieved of the pressure of supporting two armies. Union troops had either been living well off the southern populace, or at least had been supplied sufficiently by their own logistic networks. So there were many in the army who would wish to do the same to the north. This is why the target is going to be Pennsylvania. Rebels had been reluctant to take resources away from civilians in Maryland, if you remember, because of the split nature of that state. This is not going to be the case in Pennsylvania. Jefferson Davis is hesitant, but the cabinet is going to vote 5-6 to six in favor of an invasion. Lee will set out with preparations. Notably, he also has a conference with his primary subordinate, James Longstreet. Now, the nature of this discussion is going to have ramifications on the campaign to come. As we are going to discuss, Longstreet is not going to perform well at Gettysburg, and part of the reason is that he thinks he is taking on more of an elevated role with Lee. Remember, he has been trying to take on an independent command. He is going to write that he allowed for the invasion for the understanding that would be fought on the offensive-defensive a.k.a. they will let the Union attack them, just like Fredericksburg. It is notable the verbiage that Old Pete uses, essentially conceding to the invasion. Do you think Lee thinks he needs his permission for the plan of action? Well, as we will see, his old war horse certainly thinks he does, and is going to show as the battle unfolds. It is notable that Lee is going to send mapmaker Jedediah Hotchkiss on a mission across the Potomac, so he's going to have accurate intel on the terrain in Pennsylvania as he moves in. Likewise, he's going to suggest to Davis, albeit a little later in the campaign, that Beauregard should come up and at least threaten Washington with a phantom army. Davis will not allow for this to happen. In fact, he will spend much time messing with the dispositions as we will see. I have seen the miscommunication between Davis and Lee as to the nature of the action as the true point where the confederacy loses. Lee is understanding that the concentration of forces is to be the name of the game, but his president as we will see has other ideas. On the Union side, we need to talk about Joe Hooker and the developments in the army. Now Hooker is going to wish to push some more offensive action, something Lincoln and Stan will no longer wish to support. He wants to get even with Lee after his setback at Chancellorsville, a loss he blames on three individuals, George Stoneman, Sedgwick, and Oliver Otis Howard, two of which are still going to be with the army. Despite the cavalry action that we're going to get into next week, Hooker is going to be aware that his enemy will move north, but the objective is unclear. The Army of the Potomac is going to go through some changes following the fighting in May so we will try to highlight those, minus the cavalry, which we will cover here in a future episode. Just know that Stoneman is out, and Alf Pleasanton, who we have talked about before, is in. Hooker, though, is going to start bumping heads with the President and War Department. He will ask for a greater portion of command, and will continue to advocate a strike at Richmond while the Cat is away. In fact, as the Confederate Army begins to pull out, he is going to have portions of the Sixth Corps across the Rappahannock and skirmish with A.P. Hill, who remains long enough to withdraw his divisions one by one on their route north through the Shenandoah. The Union commander will wish to press on the southern capital, showing he could do so, but his primary objective from the President and Halleck is going to be to protect Washington and Baltimore from the enemy threat, and so he will start to pull his forces back. In the meantime, there are going to be potential moves. Hooker orchestrated rumblings against Burnside, and so too were their rumblings against him. Sort of fitting in a kind of way. Lincoln is going to start to interview alternatives for command, meaning Fighting Joe's days are numbered. John Reynolds will decline, as will good soldiers Sedgwick and Slocum. Hancock will also decline, not wishing to be a sacrifice in the arena of politics. All the while, one name is going to be thrown out there, George Gordon Meade. Meade is going to be the bull, locking horns mostly with Hooker. In fact, Meade is going to be thinking he will be court-martialed, which has not come, as we will soon see. Put that thought on the back burner for now. Just know that Lincoln and Halleck are not satisfied. When Hooker took over, he was able to communicate directly with Lincoln. The president will refer Hooker to deal directly with Halleck as the campaign begins. This is important because Halleck and Hooker do not get along, and it very much shows the displeasure with the commanding general. Writing on the wall for Hooker, it probably should have been, but he's going to make a big oopsie-daisy here very shortly, as we will talk about in a future episode. So, now that we mentioned what is going on, including a little preview, let's mention the Army makeup now because it will go through some shakeups. The Army of Northern Virginia did as well, but we're going to save that for a future episode. There are some changes in the Corps, as we will see. The First Corps will be commanded by John Reynolds and include divisions under Doubleday, James Robinson, and James Wadsworth. Wadsworth was a New York native and political general. The former Free Soiler had served as an aide to Irvin McDowell before serving in the Washington defenses, meaning he was still relatively new to command. At Gettysburg, Wadsworth will have the Iron Brigade under Quaker Solomon Meredith, and another brigade under Lysander Cutler, who had in his command the 14th Brooklyn amongst other regiments, giving him some good veteran troops. Robinson we have mentioned in previous episodes a New York native and old Army veteran who participated in previous campaigns. He will get the Medal of Honor as a result from his part during the action at Spotsylvania. Robinson will actually have a brigade commanded by Gabriel Paul, who you remember was passed over of command at Glorieta by John Slaw. The Second Corps will be commanded by Hancock, and then subsequently by Job Gibbon. John Caldwell commands the 1st Division, his having the Irish Brigade under Patrick Kelly, Edward Cross's Brigade, including his 5th New Hampshire, and brigades under Samuel Zook and John R. Brooke. Caldwell was a Vermont native who had taught before the war. He will go on to corps command and after the war be placed in various federal positions. Zook was a Pennsylvania native and worked for a telegraph company before the war. He had already served on the peninsula, and then again at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Gibbon will have brigades under Harrow, the Philadelphia Brigade under Rookie Officer Alexander Webb, and Norman Hall, commanding, amongst other regiments, the Harvard Regiment, the 20th Massachusetts. Alexander Hayes will command the 3rd Division, his brigades under Samuel Sprigg Carroll, Thomas Smith, and George Willard the last of these made up of regiments who had been captured at Harper's Ferry and eager for revenge. Sickles is still going to be in charge of the 3rd Corps, with David Burney and Andrew Humphreys as his division commanders. Burney will have a Pennsylvania Brigade under Charles Graham, a mixed brigade under Hobart Ward, and a brigade under the French immigrant and revolutionary Regis de Trobriand. Humphreys will have a brigade under Joseph Carr, the Excelsior Brigade under William Brewster, and a third under George Burling. At the beginning of the campaign, Meade will command the 5th Corps, but it will be taken over by George Sykes at his elevations. Sykes will have a division under James Barnes, commanding in the place of Charles Griffin, who is going to miss the campaign, which will include brigades under James Tilton, Jacob Schweitzer, and Strong Vincent. Barnes had attended the military academy and been a civil engineer before the war. Schweitzer was a Pennsylvania native and former lawyer before the war. Already having seen service, wounded and captured at Gaines Mill, he will continue to command in the East after the battle. Strong Vincent was another Pennsylvania native and former lawyer before the war. He had seen action on the peninsula before contracting malaria returning to take command of the brigade. Roman Ayers, who you remember was held in reserve at First Bowl Run, will have two brigades of regulars under Hannibal Day and Sidney Burbank, as well as an additional brigade under Stephen Weed. We talked about Sidney Burbank's brigade actually in our Patreon episode, the 11th U.S. Regulars, serving on the first day there at Chancellorsville. So definitely, shameless plug, go back and check that out. Weed was a career soldier who had mostly served in the artillery before switching to Infantry Command. Samuel Carroll will have a division of Pennsylvania Reserves to round out the 5th Corps. Uncle John Sedgwick is still commanding the 6th Corps, having divisions under Horatio Wright, Albion Howe, and John Newton. The 11th Corps is still under Howard, with divisions under Francis Barlow, Adolph von Steinwehr, and Carl Schurz. This mostly German Corps, as we have mentioned, is going to be eager to wipe off the tarnish to their reputation received at Chancellorsville. Henry Slocum will have the 12th Corps, with divisions under Alpheus Williams and John Geary. John White Geary will have, as his brigade commanders, one George Green, and there will be an independent battalion of Maryland troops, as well as one New York Regiment, commanded by Henry Lockwood, whose ancestor did good service in the American Revolution. Artillery is going to be under Henry Hunt, with a reserve artillery under Robert Tyler. Cavalry I will actually talk about in a future episode, as we mentioned. Daniel Butterfield is still going to be the Chief of Staff for the Army. Warren will be the Chief of Engineers, who also will have a part to play in our story. Colonel George Sharp is going to be at the head of the BMI, the Bureau of Military Intelligence. Sharp was a New York native and lawyer before the war, and he's going to go into politics afterward. Now, we have mentioned the Bureau, and it may be an oversight on my part, but they do well to give accurate intel on the Confederate Army using scouts and civilian assistance. For instance, they will accurately predict the Confederate strength before Chancellorsville, and they will come up to the conclusion that only Pickett's division had not been used by the third day at Gettysburg. Now, was this as in-depth on the Army of the Potomac as I could have gone? No. We'll make sure to mention more names and units as they arise through our story, giving them the attention they deserve. But let's call it a day right there. We had actually a pretty busy time. We talked about McClellan getting the boot, siege operations at Vicksburg, and politics in the Army. In addition, we kicked off Gettysburg. We started with the Confederate invasion plans, checked in on the Army of the Potomac, and then finally had a brief rundown of the makeup for the Federal Forces. Next week, we are going to have another action-packed episode. We're going to first talk about Brandy Station in Virginia, and then head out to Louisiana to Milliken's Bend. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information, Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.